everyone. How is everybody today? Excellent. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn in it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Uh, and it, uh, the scriptures we're going to be dealing with are also on your fridge fold. If you have you know, a handheld or a tablet, you can go there as well. Um, we're going to talk today about service. We're going to talk today about what it means to belong to a place like E3 that says at the core of our existence, service is part of who we are and what we do, because it is. Uh, one of the core expressions of our DNA is that we serve at E3. So in your journey to belong uh, to E3, at E3, if you're on that journey, your journey is, is one towards a place that expresses itself in service. And I just want to tell you that if you don't know that. And what I also want to do right off the bat is tell you how we express service at E3. Because we do it in a couple of different ways. At E3, we have two expressions of service. We have inward service and we have outward service. And I just want to tell you real briefly what, what those things are, the way they play themselves out at our church. Inward service is anything that happens around this physical location, this building, the, the offices over there. Anything that happens around here that prepares this space for, uh, to receive you guys, to receive people on Sundays. So people show up during the week and they mop the floors that you guys walk in on. And people show up and they, they, they wander through picking up trash and, and they pick up stuff so that when you come in on a Sunday, this place is prepared to receive you as a visitor. That's inward service. Uh, it also over in the office, things have to happen so that this place is, a, is an adequate base for us to do ministry for you and with you. So all in all, inward service uh, uses things like sponges and mops and cleaning solution and lawn mowers and hammers and nails to make this place a space that we can watch God work in, a place that makes it safe. And if you have skills like that, if you are uh, a mop master, or if you can use a hammer with any sort, sort of effectiveness, let me tell you, we can use you. This place doesn't happen by accident. I know some of you may sit there and say, like, well, isn't that what we pay you pastors for? Actually, no. You know, uh, Dan Meyer is the guy that kind of most of this stuff, uh, one of the other pastors, is, he's the guy that most of this stuff falls on because Dan has amazing skills as a contractor and is just a heavy lifting guy. But one, I want to tell you, Dan can't be in two or three or four places at once. He can't mop the floor over here and he can't be fixing a, a fallen doorway over there and he can't be meeting with you at the red eye all at the same time. And furthermore, that's not what Dan is called to do in this community. We would rather Dan meet with you and hear your story than fix a wall that's falling down. But walls fall down and Dan's really handy with a hammer. And when Dan fixes something, it stays fixed until Jesus comes home. <laughs> but let me tell you, 
uh, this place doesn't happen without inward service. It doesn't happen without people showing up. We have another expression of service at E3. It's called outward service. And uh, its primary expression is something called Serve Tallahassee. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Serve Tallahassee here at E3. Uh, If you're around this place for any multiples of weeks, you're going to hear about Serve Tallahassee. We feed and, and provide resources and groceries for 70 some families in Frenchtown. Some families who have too much month for their money. And we believe at E3 that we need to be Jesus in a tangible way to people. So outward service says, you know what? They're in our community. Service isn't about just looking in at this space on a Sunday. Service is about looking out to where the needs are. So a group of people descend on this place a couple times a month and they put bags and groceries and then they go out on a Saturday morning and they deliver the groceries and they have conversations and they swap stories with people and we try to share lives as best we can. That ministry is run by Elizabeth Wilkes who does a great job and she's got a great team of people with her. So inward service, outward service. That's primarily the way it breaks down at E3. And that's the way we uh, conceptualize it here. But service, let's be honest, is a much fuzzier, much bigger term because people serve on the worship team. We have a team of people who just got back from serving in Haiti. And we're about to send another people, a group of people out to serve in Guatemala. So at the same time, service has a very focused expression at E3. We recognize that it's a a really big, grand term. And so what I wanted to do this morning is take a little bit of a look of of what service is, especially as Jesus would express it. And I want to start with merely saying this, that um, as a church, as people of faith, we believe that service is a little bit more than having a hammer or having a mop or putting food in groceries. Those things are all absolutely critical. The actions of service are absolutely necessary or service doesn't get done. Am I right? If the food doesn't go into the grocery bag, there's no grocery bags. There's no food to be delivered. If the hammers don't show up, the things don't get fixed. If people don't take action in service, things don't get done. But as believing people, we believe that there's a a twist to service that we need to take seriously. And that is what goes on in our hearts when we serve. It's not just the actions of service that matter, but it's the attitude of service that we have to carry with us and take seriously. Because I've known people, I've heard stories of people that have traveled thousands of miles, that have gotten on airplanes and gone to foreign countries to do the actions of service, but in the entire expression that they, of the time that they were there, their attitudes were not right. And they went with, with an attitude of like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't want to be here. And they have done all of the actions, all of the things right. And yet something was like missing from the experience. And then on the flip side of that, I know people who've never gone anywhere, who merely come here and pick up a mop and start pushing it around this floor. And yet they do this with great love 
and the people that maybe have just driven from Killarn down to here, something magical and special and spiritual happens because their attitude combined with their actions of service just made something happen. Now, I also want to be clear. I've known much more people from E3 that have traveled thousands of miles and they've gone and the actions and the attitudes have lined up and it's been a wonderful, amazing experience. I just meant to make the point that for us, it's not about what gets done. It's also about how it gets done. And this comes, I believe, uh, from from straight from the heart of Jesus. And I want to talk a little bit about a period, a few chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. Has anybody ever remember when you've gone through a job orientation or, or a college orientation? Anybody remember that time where you had to sit, you get your employee handbook, or you sit down and they tell you at undergrad, hey, these are the, this is the rule book of, of the university you're going to go to. I remember those things. They're, they're simultaneously helpful. You know, you get the basics of your job, but they're also kind of, they can be one of these, well, that's 20 minutes or two hours that I'm never gonna get back in my life. Why did I just sit through that? Usually if you start a new job, I don't know if you're like me, you get the employee handbook and the first thing I go to is like, how fast do I accrue my vacation? When can I take my first break? But orientations like that are helpful because they give you the lay of the land. They tell you, here's what you can expect in this organization. Here's what you can expect while you are a part of this. Here are the rules. Here's what to do, what not to do. Here is the way this thing works. I remember uh, when I went to graduate school the first time, uh, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, and I don't remember, I don't remember if there was a graduate, uh, graduate level orientation, but we did a peer orientation. So they took all the first years into a classroom and they had people who were farther along in the program and they sat us down and this was the orientation. And they were telling us, this is the way it works now. You're a part of this thing and you need to understand the ground rules. So for instance, they said, you know, you lived your life a certain way when you were an undergrad that you can no longer live that way now that you're a graduate student. I remember in particular, they said, in undergrad, when you had a term paper, we know a lot of you. We were undergrads. We know that at a term paper, you wait till the last week to pick up the books and to start your term paper. In fact, we know that some of you wait till the last day or two to do your term paper. You can't do that anymore, they said. That's not the way this works. Now you're a graduate student. And they said, if you wait till the last week, you will not finish these papers and they will be awful papers, much less the last two days. It cannot be done. That's not the way the world works anymore. To which point my, the rebellious part of me, in me said, you want to bet? So not the point of the story, but I, I did undertake to write a term paper uh, in the last three days of this, and I got an A on it. And so I don't know what that did for their argument, but no, I'm not proud of that. But but orientations exist to tell you what to expect. Orientations exist to tell you the ground rules. And in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and part of 7, I want to suggest to you that Jesus gives you an orientation and gives us an orientation to following him. Jesus gives the guidelines and an orientation towards the kingdom 
of God. This is the way life works in the kingdom. This is Jesus' first big statement in the gospel of Matthew. And I think that there are some passages in here that speak directly to what we need to hear about service today. Now, uh, Jesus, there's two sides of Jesus's ministry, if I could just paint really broad strokes here. There's a side of Jesus that we know, if you've been around or if you've heard stories about him, that is radically inclusive. A Jesus that says, if there is a barrier between you and coming to know this God that loves you, I will destroy it. I will wipe it out. There is nothing that should prevent anybody from coming to know the love of God. Jesus takes that very, very seriously. In fact, uh, he goes, he makes it part of his major efforts on earth to go to people who are the, the least, the last, the lost, and to say, God loves you, and you need to hear that. In cultural terms, he would go and he would have lunch, dinner with prostitutes, drug addicts, homeless people, the people who are trying to hustle you for money. And he goes and he sits down and he goes, hey, let me tell you how much God loves you. Let me tell you that if you want to know this, you're all right. Come to know God. He wants to know you. And that was a very real and a very vital part of Jesus and his ministry. But... There's another part of Jesus's ministry. There's a part of Jesus's ministry where he was unafraid to call people to a pretty radical level of devotion to God. So where he would say, there's no barriers between you and God. There's nothing to keep you from knowing this God that loves you. But if you sign on to this, it's everything. God wants everything that you have to offer. And he's unafraid and unapologetic to say, you know how you love God? Heart, soul, mind, strength. A first century way to say, when you love God, you love God with everything you have and are. So in Matthew 5, for instance, Jesus starts talking about the Ten Commandments. And he says things like, hey, the Ten Commandments say you shouldn't murder. And then Jesus says, but I say, but I say, it's not about murder. Jesus says, if you're angry, that's a problem. See, Jesus isn't just content with the actions. He's also focused on the attitude. And if you're like me, which I suspect some of you are in this respect, I don't have so much of a problem with murder. There's no blood on my hands. But anger? all of a sudden I'm both like sitting up and paying attention to Jesus and a little bit uncomfortable in my seat because I got problems with anger. Anybody else? Maybe. A lot of you are better people than I am. <laughs> and Jesus also says, hey, you're not supposed to commit adultery. That's the action. The Ten Commandments say, don't commit adultery. But Jesus says, but, but I say to you, Problem isn't adultery. Problem is lust. Oh. Maybe you can look at that action and go, I, I don't have adultery in my list of, of things that I've done. But am I familiar with lust? 
Okay. Okay, Jesus. So it's, it's action and it's attitude. It's the expression and it's the heart. And I think at, it, at, its, at its core, what Jesus is trying to tell us so desperately is that it's not just to get the actions right. We can't just get the actions right. We can't just hammer the nails, mop the floors, put food in the grocery bags. We also need to get our attitudes right. Jesus says, essentially, you need a heart transplant. We want the expressions. We want the actions because without them, nothing would ever get done. But it's not enough. The attitudes have to be in line. So Jesus culminates this uh, discussion of the Ten Commandments, this recap of the Ten Commandments right here in uh, verse 43 of chapter 5. And he says this. He says, You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. So what Jesus does here is he he references a passage of the Old Testament out of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 is is in the middle of uh, a, a series of laws that tell the people of God how to be right with him. If you mess up, if you make a mistake, we would call it sin. Here's what you do to get back right with God. You make sacrifices. And then in the middle of this, chapter 19 comes out and says, People of God, you have to love your neighbor. People of God, you have to make room for people in need. And I suggest to you, before we go any further, that, that, what, that what we need to struggle with in this passage of Scripture for talking about service is simply this. What does love look like and who's my neighbor? It all boils down to that. What's love look like and who is my neighbor? Because I think that covers most things of service. So Jesus says, okay, Leviticus 19 says you're supposed to love your neighbor. Well, in this context, loving your neighbor would, would just mean this. It would mean I need to love, according to Leviticus, everyone who looks like me. I need to love the people who are on the same team as I am in respect to God. I need to love those who look like me, those who behave like me, those who I trust, I can look at it and I go, that person, they, yeah, I think we're down together. I think they're part of my tribe. That's my neighbor. But Jesus says, not so fast. He says, you need to love who? Tell me, church. My enemies? Does it say that? Are you sure? No, Jesus is like, love your neighbor. Hmm, love your enemies. Love the people who don't look like you because if you have enemies, it means you have friends. It means you know who your friends are. It means you know who your enemies are. It means you've got those categories. Who doesn't look like you? Who doesn't vote like you? Who doesn't have the same agenda as you have? 
Who doesn't love God the way you have? Jesus says, all of those people, those are the folks that you need to love. Those are the folks that, that need love. And then he says this. He says, if you love only those who love you, verse 46, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that. And then he goes on, if you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Jesus is basically saying, this is the way the world works. It's natural for the world to say, if you're on my team, I got your back. If, if something happens to you and you're part of my tribe, don't worry, I got your back. And there's thousands and countless stories that we see all the time of violence that gets started or something that happens that's basically something happens to somebody. A group of people go, hey, that guy's on my team. Let's all stand up for him and let's, re, let's re, uh, have revenge or let's strike back because they're part of my tribe and something's just happened to them. Jesus is like, that's the way the world works. But that's not the way the kingdom works. That's not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom says, I got to love the people that are my enemies as well. And when he says you do that, he says you act just like God. He says you act as your true, as true children of your father, who in verse 45 says he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Now, let me ask you a couple questions. Is sunlight a good thing? Sunlight's a good thing. Guess who gets it? The evil and the good. The people that know God and the people that don't know God. You might say God's neighbors and God's enemies. Let me ask you another question. Is rain a good thing? Sometimes. If you're a farmer... Is rain good? Sometimes. Guess who gets it? Everyone. The just and the unjust. You might say God's neighbors and God's enemies. See, Jesus is talking to a bunch of farmers. And believe it or not, I grew up in the country. And we did a little farming. And the last time I checked, sunshine and rain is pretty important to helping people grow. So if you're talking to farmers and you say, hey, God gives you sunlight, you're like, yeah, thank God for that. But he's like, I, he also gives sunlight to those people over there who are crazy. <laughs> and God gives you rain, but he also gives rain to those people over there that don't look like they care anything about God. So you might say that God sort of has a monopoly on loving both his neighbors and his enemies. And loving... Get this, means giving things. It means giving things that help things grow. It means sunlight. It means rain. It means food. It means providing for people, even if they don't look like they belong or care. So that's where Jesus leaves that statement. God gives sunshine rain, and he gives to everybody. And then Jesus goes on, and I just want to drive this point home a little bit more about 
Who is your neighbor? Who is Jesus calling his neighbor? And if you flip over a couple gospels to the gospel of Luke, there's a fairly well-known story that Jesus tells called the Good Samaritan. You might know it if you've been around VBS or, or Sunday school. And the situation is this, a man walks up to Jesus and, and the scriptures say he wants to trick Jesus. He's like, I'm gonna catch him. I'm gonna catch him this time. And he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to, to inherit eternal life? What can I do, Jesus, to get this life that you're offering, this life that is full of abundant joy and that looks different than the world? And Jesus says, well, you gotta love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything, everything comes on the table. And you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the guy asks the same question that we would ask in this situation. Well, who's my neighbor? Because if it's a person that looks like me, I do that pretty well. And then Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And whenever Jesus says, let me tell you a story, you better watch out because it tends to happen that like you're gonna get real uncomfortable when he says this. So Jesus replies to his question with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, a couple of things I want to point out. Jewish does not appear in the text. It's added later translations. So Jesus just says, hey, a man's walking. Now, if he's speaking to a bunch of Jewish folks, it probably makes sense that they would go, oh, it's a man. He's probably a Jewish man. When Luke's first readers were reading this, they weren't necessarily Jewish. When they would have read the original text, they might have said, well, it's probably a, a Gentile guy like me. But it's not in the text. And here's why I think it's important. Because it doesn't matter who the guy is. What matters is what happened to him. What matters is the circumstances that he was in. What matters is that he was beaten up and he was bloody and he was bruised and he was in need. Now, some of us, you might look at that and some of the first century people, they were going, well, you know, he shouldn't have been walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho because it's a dangerous road. (laughs) Or he shouldn't have been walking after dark. Doesn't he know, isn't he wise enough to know that he shouldn't have been there? Isn't it, doesn't, doesn't he maybe deserve what happened to him? Jesus said, it doesn't matter. All matters is, It happened, and he's there. He goes on. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Here's what you need to know. The priest, the temple assistant, they were were supposed to, represent the best of what God had to offer in this, culture, in this culture. If anybody knew what life with God looked like, it was a priest and a temple assistant because they were closest to God. They were in the temple and they should know what God wants out of life. And yet, and yet, when they saw the need, when they saw the person, they passed by and kept walking. So then Jesus says this, a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Now, Samaritans, cultural thing, they're despised. They're looked upon as half-breeds. They're looked upon as people who don't know 
uh, the correct religion that God wants. They intermarried with, with people who, didn't, who weren't Jewish. So the Jews thought they were just, they were way off the mark. They don't know anything about God. They're twisted. They don't have it right. And yet Jesus says, this guy stops. He feels compassion and he responds. And I want you to just pay attention to the verbs. Pay attention to the way Jesus talks about the actions of this man. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So the man responds with action. And then the, the story ends up like this. Jesus asked the guy, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, and now go and do the same. So God gives. He gives to respond to needs. Jesus tells a story about a man in need. And, and when he tells a story of how the Samaritan responds, I want to suggest to you that it's instructive for us. The text says, the despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And then this, I think, is the key text. It says, going over to him. He crosses the road. He sees a need, and instead of going on, he takes what for some of us is a thousand-mile journey across a road. And then he gets his hands dirty. He's the one who puts the bandages on. He sues the wounds. He gets involved and then he takes him with his own transportation to a place where he can heal. And then he pays for it. He puts his resources on the table too. Hands, transportation, time, effort, resources. Kind of sounds like heart, soul, mind, strength, doesn't it? But it all starts, I think, for us here in this little area of crossing the road. Because I think we see needs all the time. But where we stumble and struggle is walking those few steps across the road to where the need is. And here's the crazy part. It's not just people. Like I know the stories about a guy who's been brought. Guess what? How many people have, how many times, let me ask you this question. How many times you walked by something in this building or another building since we've been here in January and been like, why don't they fix that? That's been broken for nine months. Why doesn't Dan Meyer fix that? Sounds like a need to me. 
Is it Dan Meyer's job to always fix everything in this place? No. Service starts with walking across the road. Service starts with seeing a need and go, maybe, maybe I shouldn't email Dan about this. Maybe I'm the one who needs to cross the road. Maybe I can bring my time, my drill, my hammer, my efforts, and I can see this need and respond to it. Or, make it more evident, maybe I know that there's people who are hungry. Maybe I know that there are people in Haiti who still don't have houses to live in. Maybe I know that in Guatemala we go and we serve people and we, we, we tell kids about Jesus and we help Lloyd reach out to people who are struggling with addiction. Maybe it's time for me to cross the road and to bring my time and the week of my life to that. Maybe, I don't know. But you know why we do it? Because again, it's not enough to just say, well, I'm gonna, I'll pick up the hammer. I'll show up in, I'll show up in Haiti because you could show up in Haiti and let me tell you, you could show up in Haiti and be a pain in, in Michael's behind if your attitude's not right. You could go to Guatemala with Carl and you could be an absolute thorn in Carl's side if your attitude's not right, okay? Let's be honest. Am I wrong, gentlemen? So you know why we do what we do? Because in a real profound sense, guys, we're that guy laying on the side of the road. And we've forgotten that. I don't want to be like all super spiritual, but I am a pastor and this is a church. (laughs) At our heart, that guy who's beaten up and laying on the side of the road is us. And you know something? God crossed the road to come to us. Because at some point in our life, maybe it's now, maybe you're still really aware that you're lying on the, on the side of the road and you're beaten up and you're bloody. And it's not time to ask, how did I get here? It's not time to ask, well, I shouldn't have been doing this. I shouldn't have been. The, the problem is you're in need. Your heart's busted. You're dealing with something that you can't shake. And you know what? We serve a God who said, I'm not gonna ask questions about how you got here. You are there. And you can't get yourself back up. You can't fix yourself. And in that moment, our God said, I will cross the road to you. And our God says, I will bandage your wounds. I will soothe you. I will pick you up and I'll pay for your healing. And a lot of us, sometimes when we talk about service, we've lost sight of the fact that at our core, we are no different than anybody else that we see in need. Go to Guatemala. Yeah, there's desperate poverty, but you know what? They're on the side of the road and so are we. We have needs They just don't look the same. And some of the problem with service comes when we carry uh, into an arena of service an attitude that's forgotten about that. And it says, you know what? Actually, actually, um, 
I picked myself up off the road. An attitude that says, actually, I have a really nice house, and you know what? I, I earned that house. I, I earned every piece of money and everything that I have in this life. I deserve. I deserve what I got because I worked hard. And don't get me wrong, I work hard. But I can never forget the fact that everything I have is a grace, is a gift, because God crossed the road. Because when you say, I deserve what I got, it's real easy to say, and they deserve what they get. Maybe they haven't worked hard enough. Maybe they haven't worked as hard as I did. And that's just not true. You're on the side of the road. They're on the side of the road. God gives gifts because he's a giving God. And everything we have is grace. And I started to think about this, this word service and and attitude. And I got to thinking about the, the, the whole attitude of deserving. I deserve what I've gotten. And I got to thinking about English grammar. The difference is just two letters, D, E. It's a prefix. I want you to think about what that prefix does when it's applied to other words. If you decertify something, what do you take? What do you do? Take away its certification. You negate it. And I got to thinking, what if when you carry an attitude of deserving anything into an arena of service, you actually negate service somewhere in your heart? When you go, I've deserved what I've gotten. They deserve what they've got. I'm here, I'll hammer, I'll lift, but my heart's not in it. Paul wrote in, in the book of Romans uh, this uh, phrase that I just want to leave you with, and he speaks to, to service and deserve, not service, but deserving things. Paul says, when people work, their wages are not a gift but something that they've earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. In other words, in a God that crosses the road. And when you introduce an attitude of working, And what I deserve to get, it rubs up against this attitude of grace and receiving that Paul writes about so clearly. So I'll just leave you with this. The actions of service absolutely required. Show up. Get involved. Give your time. Give your resources. But... Do not neglect the attitude of service. And remember that it all stems from the fact that we are all, in ways, laying here on the side of the road together because God walked across and gave us life. Would you guys pray? Mm -hmm.